Hello and welcome to this week's installment of SCI Care, What Really Matters. We are recording this episode just days after our 60th annual scientific meeting and it was, I think, a fabulous meeting despite the fact that we could not meet physically. The whole meeting was held virtually on Vancouver time and I think everybody felt that the academic program was outstanding. Today, I'm keen to hear what our guest thought of the event. So let me introduce you to Daniel Graves, known as Dan, the fairly new editor-in-chief of the ISCOS journals, Spinal Cord and Spinal Cord Series and Cases. I've known Dan for a long time. These days, he is the Professor and Associate Dean of Research at the College of Rehab Sciences and Vice Chairman of Rehab Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dan's research is in the area of spinal cord injury and outcome measurement, and he also has an interest in Abrahamic and comparative religion. Now, Dan joined ISCOS in 1995, some nine years after I joined. So what did you think of this meeting first? And then we can talk about the other things that I think the two of us will have noticed about how the society has evolved over our membership years. But first, the conference. Thank you for having me this morning. This is a really exciting new avenue for ISCOS and our uh, membership to be able to hear these podcasts. And I think social media is what I was most impressed with at the meeting this year. We had a strong social media presence, and I have to admit this is my first year to actually have a Twitter account, but I think our communications committee was very on top of things, giving us tweets about upcoming events. And I thought that really added, you know, a lot of personalization really to the meeting that you can uh, find the ones that you wanted to. It was very easy to keep up with what's coming up next. And I thought that was very interesting. Also, uh, I was just astounded at Tater's lecture. I, I thought that was a, an incredible lecture. It's always good to hear Dr. Tater talk, but I thought this was an extraordinary keynote this year. I don't know uh, if you've gotten any other comments on his talk, but I really did enjoy that talk. I was blown away by it. It was a wonderful, wonderful talk. And uh, to hear how he started out and his insights into the research process and showing his research. Some of the techniques are still being used but, uh, in research years after. It was a delight. And he was a wonderful recipient of the honour of being the Goodman lecturer. And of yeah. course, because it was not physically possible, mm. he didn't get his medal, but he will when we meet <laughs> Again, well, that's great. And I thought one of the things that was really important 
and talking about the evolution over our, our years in ISCOS, I, I found it very interesting that he not only mentioned his student who is now his boss or Michael Failings. Yes. To hear and see the demonstration of a, a longevity to this research is fantastic. And hearing about all of Sir Gutman's achievements was fantastic. So it was a very good meeting. It was a great way to start the conference. Yes, it was. Although, of course, some of us had been to some workshops on the days before. I thought that programming was much easier to follow this year than last year in terms of finding which track you wanted to be on. And yes, the social media usage of both Twitter and um, LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. Facebook were really excellent because it enabled you to also send a message back recommending particular options. And then uh, we had um, uh, Martin Schwab, who's also been a leading researcher in Europe, speaking about his longevity and his experience. A wonderful talk. I think we had great plenaries, but the instructional courses and the, the seminars, all the workshops, as well as the free papers and the talking posters. I thought the t- talking posters were a lovely innovation. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully some of those papers that we heard, uh, particularly the free papers, will end up being published in one of our journals. That would be great. Yeah. I would be very excited to um, see some of these papers. I've I read a couple of them even before they were there on preprint servers. So I think that's a very good innovation for publishing. And um, I'm yes. very happy to see the work continuing to be developed by all of the researchers and the young researchers, especially. I'm very excited about the new young, fresh minds that are coming up in spinal cord injury. And I find, uh, that's, I find that very exciting. Yeah, I was really excited that there's a real mix of social and psycho, psychological research and sociological research and plain science research and everything in between. So there was some beautiful basic science and basic clinical science going all the way through to lived experience, lifelong issues. Yeah, there was really exciting information being shared. You could find papers and posters on every part of the continuum from the basic all the way through, even some information about clinical trials. I, I think the program committee did a wonderful job of selecting the winners for the posters as well. I'd always think that's a, it's a good thing for young researchers to receive an award for doing this work. Yeah, I get a bit cross when I see when there are poster prizes and I see in conferences that the poster prizes are senior researchers. Mm-hmm. I think these prizes need to be to the junior researchers, to the people who are just above the lab rat. In terms of where they're at with their um, 
their, their research and their interests. I don't think we should be giving prizes to people who have a shelf full of PhD or MD theses lining their walls of the number of people they've actually supervised, unless you get a prize for the number of people you've supervised. So I think, no, I agree. I think there was some, there are just some lovely stuff. And even yes. the five uh, videos, having the five um, um, videos that were the prize winners for the International Spinal Cord Injury Day at the beginning of September. And I actually think that the one that won was the truly worthy winner. That was a fabulous clip from the South Africans. I look forward to next year actually being in Vancouver, which is one of my favourite places. It's a beautiful city. And hopefully the airways will have opened and we will be allowed to travel and we will have had our boosters and all the rest of it. We can certainly hope. I have really missed getting together with my friends at at, uh, the meetings and I look forward to it. It's always a very stimulating meeting for me because I get to meet people from all over the world and, you know, we all know each other. Yeah. It's very nice to see your friends. (laughs) Exactly. I agree. And I've been going to ISCOS meetings since uh, 1988, when it was IMSOP. Spinal cord injury is really a rare disease. It meets the criteria for rare diseases. I mean, sure, there are some pediatric cancers that are more rare, but it's a relatively rare occurrence. So as an international group, we're quite a small group, accounting all the researchers, all the nurses, all the allied health, all the doctors. There aren't that many of us who do it, who do the research, who teach about it. And so getting together at conferences is a wonderful way of reigniting passions. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to seeing people and together in the same physical space as well instead of cyberspace. Yeah. There was one touching part of the the meeting that you, when we talked about those leaders of our field who have passed. And uh, of course, my mentor, Ed Carter, was there on the top of the list. Yeah. He was one of my mentors too. Yeah. At my first Asia meeting, I was very anxious about presenting our data on obstructive sleep apnea in people Mm. with chronic established spinal cord injury, high spinal cord injury. And he reassured me by telling me that they'd only booed one person out of them. And we all knew who that was and we also knew why. And that was quite reassuring. And then he was the chair of the session that I was presenting in, which was was just wonderful yeah and he will be sorely missed he was truly a generous mentor he really did bring me into the field of spinal cord injury so when i started working uh, with him is when i started thinking about the spinal cord as more than a a phone line i really owe him a great deal of uh, debt of gratitude for sure 
Yes, I think that's one of the lovely things at the AGM that we do is that we yeah. recall those people who we've lost in the last year. And I guess I'm really pleased to see younger people coming up because as the ISCOS community knows, I hit my 70th birthday on the weekend as well. And that was supposed to be the biblical age of reason when you reach three score years and 10. I, I look forward to that myself. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, but I, I want to hear more about how you're going as editor-in-chief because we used to have one editor, but, of course, we only had one journal. And then we went to having the second journal, a series in cases, and that was really Professor Vindala's baby. Then he retired from being the editor-in-chief, one of the editors. He did the lot. And the editorship was then split so that there was an editor for Spinal Cord and a separate editor for Serious and Cases. And as it happened, neither of those fantastic women wanted to be reappointed for another four years. And it won't surprise me if you decide that it's all too much too. But I hope not, because I think that leadership often when there's change happening, the leader needs to be around for a bit longer. But we talked about it and we talked about it in the strategic plan and we made the decision that we wanted to go back to having a single editor-in-chief and to the editor-in-chief to decide how he or she wanted to organise editorial boards and deputy or associate editors, etc. So you took on the job at New Year 2021 when we still expected, I think, for the airways to open and the borders to open. And then we got this other variant called Delta, which has affected everywhere. So how have you been going in your new job? Because I know that you don't do anything else. This is your full-time job, isn't it? No, this is it. This is uh, my retirement. <laughs> so I, I have enjoyed being the editor-in-chief a great deal. I have increased my time spent in the literature exponentially, of course, because mm -hmm. I have to at least scan every paper that comes in and then find the appropriate associate editor to run the paper. Usually, uh, many times, that winds up being me because I don't want to overwork them. But I think it's going fairly well. There were some delays and, and things that took a little longer as I'm learning the system. But I think everything is going well. We have a good number of articles coming in, which is always good. And we are trying to separate out the kinds of papers that go into each of the journals a little bit more clearly for the authors and for our um, editors. I think that's going to make it a little to decide which journal to submit to. And we're looking forward to some, maybe some innovations like brief reports that could be very quick, short papers that would maybe even 
publish things that are not significant so that we can add that to the scientific literature and keep from having to rerun trials or experiments that had failed in the past. There's some very interesting things in publishing that I would like to bring in. I look forward to raising the quality of the papers that are published and giving them a longevity, just like we were talking yeah. about with our, our research um, and the people who do it. You know, we really want to publish papers in the journal that are going to live on. It does no one any good to publish a paper that never gets cited. No, and it's very exciting, actually, when you have a paper that has longevity and continues to be cited in the literature and other people's work. It is, it's, uh, you know, you sort of go, wow, that's, <laughs> that's still going. Um, yeah. And if, you get, and if you get included in a, a systematic review, that's yeah. always exciting, too. Exactly. And so we want to try and push the level of evidence up a little bit on our papers. It's going to be an interesting journey, and um, I am still able to work about 18 to 20 hours a day, so, you know, let's just forge ahead. I guess it makes for a tough schedule because I think you've got quite a heavy teaching load as well and research. So how do you manage the print schedules for the for spinal cord, which comes out in print and online, and then series and cases, which comes out when you've got enough copy, when you've got enough uh, papers to put in it. How do you manage to get the journals working side by side? I rely heavily on Virginia right. Mercer from Nature. She is very good at pointing out my deficiencies and things of that nature in a very polite, wonderful way. So between Virginia and Christy, I have a lot of prompts to get things done during the day. I think getting them to work side by side is very critical, but we have, you know, a fairly good backlog of papers that we can choose from to hopefully select huh. issues that have a, at least a common theme. Yeah. I think those are always a little bit better received by the readership yeah. and it might even allow you to find research that you wouldn't if it is related to your topic. So I, I find that the thematic issues are really important. I like the last thematic issue that I picked up and looked a lot at was the urology one. And there was lots of really good stuff in that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Dr. Krebs did a wonderful job with that. Yeah. And what about series and cases? You've mentioned to make it clearer about what gets published where, because I think one of the things that I found confusing was almost the lack, the sort of cross boundaries between the two journals with two editors who wanted to both publish the same stuff and also didn't want to publish the same stuff and so it made it quite a difficult difficult process I think to be even able to advise people where to submit and how to submit so how, how do you think the journals should be separated? I think that it would depend on what the article is intending to do if it is 
a case report, obviously, in series and cases would be the place for it. That's because that is used as a pedagogical device. It is a teaching device. Yeah. I see one of the main distinctions between spinal cord and series and cases is series and cases is about clinical education and it's about giving clinicians tools like the translations, the regional translations of, of scales. That's very necessary work, but a limited number of people who would be informed by that, but it is still clinical education. So it would be more to the series and cases and spinal cord I see as really much more involved in, in the actual rehabilitation science of trials of protective agents of basic science. You can go all the way along, especially the lived experience. I, I really appreciated you mentioning that earlier. I think we've had some wonderful articles recently on yes. the lived experience. And I would like that to uh, continue. But that is the kind of work that is real research that will lead to more research as where a series in cases is research that will lead to education. And you mentioned the back and forth from the other editors. And I, I know both of them and I love them both very much. They are wonderful. And um, I don't continue to argue with myself. I usually win those arguments anyway. I feel that's a, a good distinction. And as, as we begin and publish more our, um, issues, I think that's going to become more clear. And also Virginia and I are going to work on the in instructions for authors to describe these brief reports and describe the need for reporting guidelines on almost every kind of article that we're going to publish. I think that makes it easier then well, for all of us, actually, to submit papers, and not just the junior researchers, but for all of us to have clearer guidelines. I know I heard you mention the idea of having guidelines for case reports and actually saying how case reports should be set out. What's the information? I was looking up some old stuff of mine that just happened to turn up under a pile of papers. The rest of the papers got shredded, but this piece of handwritten notes got kept. And it was about from a, a uh, presentation I gave several years ago, and I realised, oh, I have never, I've never actually written this up. And there was something like 14 cases the patients that I'd listed, and of course now it's the same number uh, tripled, the same issues, and yet it's clinical. It's clinical experience. It's clinical advice. It's very much along the clinical teaching line as opposed to a uh, cohort. I could call it a cohort study, but it's not really, and it's certainly not a blinded study. When you provide, it, it's an end of one study on each of the patients, but it's not the sort of study that you would ever think of writing up as a scientific literature because there's actually nothing written in the literature about some of these things. They're what old might be see. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to have these 
case studies and the case series put out that is directly affecting the, the patient's life. If there is a doctor somewhere who's never seen this condition, exactly. I'm sure this paper right. could be a godsend to them. Yeah, exactly. And, and it may spur somebody on to actually then do some research to see whether one treatment is more effective than another treatment. When you're talking about physical treatments, we know that the evidence for most physical treatments, and I think Lisa Harvey pointed out this out so well, is that there's very little evidence for a lot of the treatments that we provide. We do yes. them because we think they work. They might not always work. <laughs> yeah, I, I sometimes get a kick out of people telling me that you shouldn't use one drug for pain because everybody's always used the other, but there's no evidence for the other drug either. And oh, that's um, right. And of course, a lot of the drugs that we use, the older drugs, I think about ones like baclofen, the older epileptic, anti-epileptic drugs, the older tricyclic, all these drugs, the drug trials that were done, if there were drug trials done, would not meet today's stringent standards. And in fact, it's like, you know, Francis Drake actually introduced tobacco to, the, to England. And, uh, but if it were today, I don't think that the FDA, the European Food and Drugs, the Australian Goods Therapeutic and Other Goods Authority, any of them would actually legalise this drug. So it's, it's quite interesting. And sometimes the newer drugs aren't as effective as the older drugs. And they say, but what's the evidence? And you say, well, the evidence is clinical experience because no drug company is going to pay for a blinded trial on a drug that is so long out of, out of uh, patent that uh, there's no money to be made. That is why it's really unusual for ISCOS to have both of our journals because we have the clinical education piece and the research piece. And yeah. I don't know of many other places that do that. Um, it's one or other, isn't it? Yeah. It, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to be able to support our membership and people with spinal cord injuries, because this is a lot of very uh, well-reviewed and solid evidence in these papers. And mm. I find that to be incredible for ISCOS. You know, our impact factor has gone up uh, mostly because of Lisa's hard work, but yes, I would say that the other organizations that own journals may not have as strong uh, impact factor. So I think Spinal Cord really is a leader in that and yeah. having a sister journal to be able to produce additional information that couldn't fit into one journal is is fantastic for ISCOS. Yeah, fantastic for our wider readership. And it's actually a good peg to get people to join. Yeah. <laughs> join ISCOS because <laughs> you get two journals online for a minute amount compared to any other organisation or journal. It's, yeah. We're very lucky. And I think that's why we have people in less resourced countries joining. I think that's why we have allied health and nurses 
joining, as well as the research people, the academics, and the doctors. So and I, I find that that mix to be very stimulating intellectually. We can bring in other areas and have an interdisciplinary working group. But what I really admire about ISCOS is that we are making a conscious effort to spread this evenly around the world. And to me, I think that speaks to our founders' goodwill and generosity and putting together an organization that could reach everywhere, even into the hinterlands of some of these countries and developing countries. And I think that got to be comforting to the people with spinal cord injuries who are the reason that we do what we do. So you're obviously enjoying being the editor-in-chief. I remember having a little discussion with you when we were both associate editors of Series and Cases, and I'm pleased that you put your hat in the ring. But publishing for youngsters, whether they're clinicians or basic researchers or whatever, can be quite daunting. So do you have suggestions to help people start off publishing when they haven't got a track record? Because, of course, without the track record, you can't climb up the academic ladder, even if you can climb up the clinical one. That's very true. It's often, I believe, more fear on the part of young investigators than an actual barrier to getting published. But I would actually ask the the new researcher to maybe take a step back from thinking about just writing papers and actually give me a, a few reviews first. Having young investigators review papers and learn how to review papers is an absolutely necessary first step to having your own publications. I know that everybody has read papers before. We all think that we know how to scan through a paper and read it. When you're actually going through the process of reviewing it and you can see the way people develop the idea in the paper and present the evidence and you can help them craft it into a better published paper, I think that's a very good first start for reviewers or for young uh, researchers. But I would also suggest that when they are preparing their paper, that they do bring on in the process, the reporting guidelines, they're there for a reason. And those reporting guidelines are there so that all of the information necessary to make this as good a published report as possible is there. And that ensures longevity. And it can also be like an outline for your paper. It just tells you what to write at what point. And you can make sure that you get it all in there and you cover the waterfront. But not only that, but you have a complete report at the end. So those are the two things I would suggest. And also talk to the editor. I mean, I'm not just an email address. I mean, there, you know, there are... Uh, ways that we can communicate and especially asking before you send a paper in, send me the abstract, see if this is something that would fit. So communicate with your editors. I think that's a very important part. 
That's very interesting. I've never thought of that particular issue. But there's, first of all, the idea of we oldies encouraging younger clinicians or researchers to put their hand up to be reviewers is always a great idea because we're always looking for more reviewers and mostly I mean it's you can tell them you're one reviewer this paper will have two reviewers or three reviewers whatever it happens to be so you don't need to feel that you're the only person making the decision there will be somebody else who is probably going to be a more senior reviewer and and encouraging them to do that I think that's a fantastic idea and something that you as the editor-in-chief could encourage as an idea and you could almost put it out there in the newsletter, in Tom's newsletters. We need more reviewers. How about encouraging your more junior colleagues um, to, to do it? I think, I think there are ways we could publish this idea without taking up journal space even. Um, I think that's wonderful. Um, what about transparency and research science? A couple of times when I've been reviewing a paper, um, I am concerned when I couldn't track some of their references and you start to wonder if you can't actually track the reference and it, it might be an interesting reference apparently and you can't find it you then start to wonder whether there are other things in the paper that perhaps aren't as accurate as they should be. And then you wonder about whether the research is actually okay because, as we all know, there have been issues with people publishing research that then turns out to be fraudulent. Yes, that is a, that is a big problem. Fortunately, I think, we have a pretty good record of, of finding those and, and we don't have very many retractions. I think some people are, are better at subterfuge than others. I think the, the whole reason that we want these reporting guidelines and the reason that we want people to provide us with all of the information is to find that out. It's very tedious to track down every reference in a paper. We do have a responsibility to our membership and to people with spinal cord injuries. And that is very important. And I think there's several organizations right now that are, mm -hmm. are working on the transparency of science. And I think if we publishing protocols yeah. so that people can understand the protocol that went behind the study, and if we can even get our people to put things on preprint servers and also be very clear as to where other interested parties can obtain the data and replicate, yeah. those are all critical pieces. And I think that we might even be able to store some of this on our, our supplementary information on the website. I think those are very important questions and we take them very seriously. So transparency in science is very critical, especially at this point, because we have many 
very exciting different trials that are out there. And I think that we should make sure that the information we pass on is accurate as possible. Yeah. And at the same time, because we know that we've covered vaccines and the way it's been utilised to protect communities or not, and the number of people who are uncertain about the research or who are actual anti-vaxxers, complete anti-vaxxers for vaccines or just anti-vaxxers for this set of vaccines has, I think, made the non-scientific community much more concerned about the science. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, it does. This is a very good example of the misinformation and everyone in the world is up in arms about misinformation about the vaccine and so on. But there's, there is, we've, we talked about earlier, some misinformation about the cures and the drugs that we use. And so it is up to us and it, the burden is on the researchers to, to provide that evidence and, um, you know, make it the highest quality level possible. And one of the uh, suggestions I floated at the editorial board meeting a couple of weeks ago was that we start having the articles graded for level of evidence and printed on the front page. That way, uh, we not only talk the author through the process of raising it to the highest level possible and educating them as to what is necessary to get up to the next level. It also provides better, higher quality, less bias in the information for our readership and for people with spinal cord injury. Yeah. I find that a very good idea and way to move forward. I, I think that's, that's a wonderful way to move forward, actually. And, I, and sure, in a series of cases, you might, we might be looking at levels three to five, whilst in spinal cord, we would like as many of the papers we publish to be uh, level one or maybe level two. So very high evidence-based research versus clinical experience, which is very important, but not necessarily at the same level of research executive. I think that's a great idea. Any other great ideas that you're coming up with or your Oh, that's that's two today. I don't. I think that's enough. I, I'm a pilot. Yes. Okay. Uh, and and perhaps we should leave it there. In that it's getting late in Australia, and and it's the beginning of a working day. Yeah, it's uh, very early for me. I've already had one meeting today, and it's only eight yeah, o'clock. Yeah. So. I think it's been just fascinating and wonderful to talk with you. I really have enjoyed it too, Ruth. And I, I really appreciate, you know, I haven't really thought about how long we've known, we've known each, each other. other a long it time. has been quite a while. Yeah, we don't need to talk about how long it is. It's just been a long time. It has been a while. And I think I met you at Asia meetings before I met you at ESCOS. Um, with uh, Tom uh, Strayer, John and with Strayer. John Strayer. Right? Um, yeah, and uh, he always spoke very highly of you too. <laughs> by the way, I just thought you. I was surrogate um, godmother 
for his daughter. Um, so we remain very good friends and um, I miss him. Uh, he's yeah. a great clinician and has the addition of lived experience, which I think makes for special insights mm. um, that are important. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. I think we should close there, but it's been lovely to speak and I look forward to seeing you in person as opposed to cross the screens in the not too distant future. We've talked a bit about how much we enjoyed the conference, which has just finished, and a lot about the journals and publishing and how you see the journals, I think, moving forward and becoming more separate in a way so that it becomes much clearer about what should be published in which journal. And also, I love the idea of providing better information to would-be writers on how to, what articles go in which journal and how to present them, and also the idea of getting our younger colleagues to become active reviewers of articles as a major way of learning how to write and maybe how not to write articles so thank you very much there you have it another fabulous episode of spinal cord injury sci care what really matters we hope you have enjoyed listening and please do share this episode with your teammates and colleagues as always we would love to hear from you if you have any questions or suggestions you can email them to our office admin at iscos.org.uk. And if you missed our 60th annual scientific meeting within a month of the conference, you can still register and access all of the sessions on demand. So go ahead and have a listen. You'll also find us on social media, so do follow us and join in our conversations. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. Bye for now.